0: Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 57, The Excommunicate. When we were last with John a few weeks ago, he'd been making his first attempts to recover his French lands, but with very limited success. So, hate it or loathe it, for the moment John was confined to England. But he had no intention of resting easy during his confinement. In some shape or form, he wasn't going to stop planning and working to get those lands back or at least certainly not until after 1214. Whatever plan he came up with, it was going to have to involve money, and in 1205 this presented him with something of a problem. Because there were four things coming together. Firstly, he'd lost vast parts of his empire, and therefore vast sources of royal revenue. Secondly, in losing that empire, he'd given himself an unusually keen need for lots of money to carry out a war of reconquest. Thirdly, That great cause he now had to win back the lands of his forefathers wasn't very popular, which made raising the stuff more difficult. And finally, his reign coincides with some unhappy economic circumstances. All of this meant that John had to strain every nerve to bring in the royal revenues, and in the creation of the revenue omelette, a certain amount of egg-breaking was inevitably going to take place. Since the first shall be last, let's talk about the economics of it all first. Increased activity in European markets, greater abundance of silver from Germany, vast expenditure on war, combined with a slow pace of economic productivity growth to produce inflation. It meant, of course, that one of the largest of John's costs rose, i.e. the cost to employ his mercenaries. Some of these cost rises were pretty remarkable. So a soldier that cost Henry II eight pence cost John two shillings. For those of you too young or too not British to remember, there are 12 pence to a shilling and therefore my sums come up with this being a 300% inflation rate. Winners from this inflation were the lords who managed their lands directly and therefore profited from the higher prices they could charge for produce, while treading their tied villains faces into the medieval mud by not increasing wages. The ones who'd lost were those who'd given out their lands to their knights and vassals, and therefore had committed to a fixed rent. So, over the 12th century, there was a steady trend to bring land back into the direct control of lords, back into their domain. As the largest landowner, John did exactly the same thing. He didn't introduce any great innovations, but he did sweat his assets, the domain lands, as hard as he could. The trouble was that both he and the Angevin kings had given away so much land through patronage. And this meant that John only had something like two-thirds of the domain lands that his grandfather the Conqueror had possessed. So John did his best where possible to find other ways to reward his followers. An example is the money thief, as we've seen before with Henry I, i i.e. rather than giving land to a vassal in return for military service, you give money instead. John then has to strain the feudal system of taxation to the very limit. He raised the scootage tax, i.e. the tax where he gave money instead of military service, no fewer than 11 times in his first 16 years. This compares with just three such taxes raised by Richard in 10 years, and Henry II's 8 over 34. So, a massive increase in the number of times he did it. John also increased the rate he charged, which the barons really hated for obvious reasons. John also milked the royal revenues from justice absolutely mercilessly, so that basically if you went to law, whether as a plaintiff or a defendant, it was going to cost you somewhere down the line. Worse, John exploited wardships as hard as possible, charging barons increasingly large amounts of money for the right to control the lands and marriage of underage heirs and heiresses. He also raised the tax called a carricade, which was basically a property tax on all movable goods. One of these, assessed at 1 thirteenth, or about 8%, raised a massive £60,000. Trouble was, John didn't like these kind of taxes, because they required the consent of the barons. And getting the consent of anyone for whatever he wanted to do really just wasn't John's style. Plus, he knew that when he asked the barons, hey, let's raise a tax to go and fight some wars in France and drink some wine, they basically said, no thanks, let's stay in England, where the weather's better, And anyway, I've got Roland the Farter coming round next week. The barons didn't like his foreign wars, and he knew they'd cut up rough. So he dropped the idea of the Karakate Tax after 1207. An area that causes particular pain is the Royal Forest. Now, as much as a third of England was designated as Royal Forest in John's time. The laws that protected them were very strict and constantly chafed with the local inhabitants, high and low. This meant that it was relatively easy to find people breaking the rules. John regularly organised forest airs, i.e. royal justices going round the forests and investigating any kind of infringements, and charging heavy fines when the inevitable infringements were found. Maybe someone had been caught with an unlawed hunting dog on the royal forest, because you could have some type of dog on the royal forest, but only if it had been lawed, i.e. had most of its claws removed. Or maybe someone had been caught carrying a bow. If you broke these or any of the laws, it would cost you. It's true to say that everyone hated the Forest Laws big time. Except John, of course, who loved them. His hunt for money drove John to spend a lot of time and energy in improving the efficiency of royal administration. And here's one area where John's supporters pop up and point out that John took a keen and detailed interest in both administration and justice. And okay it's true to say that there's plenty of evidence to support that view. He started off by making sure that he had the right people in the right place. First of all, this meant that as soon as he arrived, he twisted Hubert Walter's arm and got him to become Chancellor again, despite the fact that he was also the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, we already know that Hubert was uncomfortable in combining royal office with a religious office as exalted as the Archbishopric, though in fact, of course, churchmen in royal administration was very common. But in 1198 Hubert had actually resigned as Chancellor for this very reason but John was insistent and Hubert became Chancellor until his death in 1205. There were though few real innovations in the way government was conducted more that John made the current system work harder. But just to be totally fair there were a few innovations. In 1204-5 for example he withdrew the coinage and replaced it with a high quality coin. More significantly, he made an attempt to modernise by making the sheriffs directly responsible for a budget on their patches rather than having a farm operation. So the tax farming approach said look, just give me X pounds for that patch you're working, and then if you can collect X plus one, you can pocket the one. This is a nice, simple system, easy to administer, but it made the sheriffs rapacious. Every extra penny they exacted, the more they earned. And sometimes they'd have to pay a significant amount of money to get the job in the first place. So they needed to really make a return on their original investment. And that meant screwing as much out of the people in their patch as they could possibly do. Of course, it also lost the crown revenue. John would have much preferred to get the X plus one pounds rather than the X and have to share the one with the sheriffs. So John tried an experiment where the sheriffs basically just got paid to do a job Then they had to record all their takings and send them directly, much more like a modern system. But it doesn't work. The sheriffs hate it because they can't make as much money and they can't handle the administration. So it's dropped, much to John's fury. And finally, record-keeping is much more structured and comprehensive. John's reign really sees the explosion in the amount of documentation we have that survived and also in the quality in which it is catalogued and maintained. But in other ways, John is very traditional. For example, with the increasing complexity of government, there was an underlying movement towards specialisation and departmentalism. But John resisted it fiercely, so his administrators always have multiple jobs. Take William Rotham, for example. As we heard a few weeks ago, he was the administrator of the navy with the title Keeper of the King's Ports and Galleys. But he was also Warden of the Stannaries, i.e. the Tin Mines, He ran some mints. He was occasionally a circuit judge and he was an archdeacon. In the same spirit, John expected to be involved day to day in administration. He made decisions on minutiae. He was an essential cog in the administrative process. He sat in courts and delivered justice. And he was by no means a hanging judge. He seems to have been genuinely concerned with delivering good judgments. For example, he takes pity on a boy who's thrown a stone and accidentally killed his mother. He takes pity on a woman who claims her husband has defrauded her. In the same vein, he was a hard but fair boss to his administrators. Yes, you got hammered if you were lazy or messed up, but he doesn't appear to have had any favourites, and he seems to have stamped on corruption as far as possible. And the records are peppered with examples of thoughtfulness, rather surprisingly, So, for example, when his valet, Pettit, falls ill and has to stay behind in Somerset, when the court moves on, the sheriff is instructed to see that he wants for nothing. He sends gowns and presents regularly to Eleanor of Brittany. But then, as we'll see in the future, John tends to be generous to the people who could do him no harm and rather brutal to those who could. A couple of general points about all of this. John was a true traditionalist. He wanted to rule in the way his father had ruled before him. So while his energy and involvement was admirable, and there is no doubt that he was hard-working and conscientious, he held back any modernising movements towards specialisation and departmentalism. He also effectively reversed the trend towards the independence of the government. While Henry, Richard and John had spent so much time abroad, English administration had learnt to get on with things without them. Now they're back to putting everything through the king's hands. Another thing is the start of a theme that runs through the long death of feudalism. Feudal Jews and the king's domain were no longer enough to run the kingdom effectively. They are cumbersome, they're difficult to collect, they're bound by ancient custom and therefore very inflexible. So for example, scootage was traditionally set at one mark, but inflation is eating away at its real value. But there is outrage when John raises the level, and when John does raise a more sensible tax, the caricate, there is stiff opposition. So in 1207 the Archbishop of York actually left the country rather than allow it to be collected on his patch. The net result was that this is one way in which John's rule came to feel tyrannous and grasping as he has to go down every possible avenue to raise the money he needs. In truth the same was true to a lesser degree of his father's reign and in truth there could be no real harmony until the barons accepted that there was a need for a system of taxation that reflected the changing needs of the country. At the same time, there would be no harmony until there was a king who could limit his extraordinary expenditure to things the whole community of the realm agreed with, and had the charisma and tact to persuade the barons of the need for change. And John, most categorically, did not have this kind of charisma, and had the tact and diplomatic skills of a ten-ton bull elephant in full charge. Now, we noted that the redoubtable Hubert Walter died in 1205, and his death was to lead to a rather remarkable little spat with the Church, which would damage John's reputation, but at the same time help him with his money problems. Now, there is, of course, a history to the royal appointments thing. After all that Gregory VII stuff, you'll be across this, but a little up-to-date context would probably be in order. So, the theory expounded and expounded and then expounded a little more by the Pope since Gregory was that worldly duties and the service of God really didn't mix. Church appointments at all levels should be made by the church, not by some grubby local lord, and at top level appointments should be made by the pope, not some grubby little king. In fact, in 1179, Pope Alexander III had decreed that any clergy who served lay lords and filled secular office would be deposed, and generally told to sling their episcopal hook. The truth was that this strategy wasn't feasible in its purest state. If you needed administrators, you needed people who could read and write, and most of them were still churchmen. Plus, no king, however small and grubby, could afford not to have some control over the church, which in England, for example, constituted 2% of the population, but 25% of the landholding. So, in practice, the popes described where the high road was but in practice turned a blind eye to what really went on, unless your name was Gregory the Seventh. Churchmen were all over the place in England's royal service. Every lay lord expected to have a deciding say in who got appointed to their local church. The deal that the two Henrys had struck with the Pope basically meant that when a bishop or archbishop was appointed, there was supposed to be a free election, but that the king would be there, and the person appointed needed to be acceptable to him. So, when Hubert died and a new Archbishop of Canterbury was needed, there really should have been no trouble, and neither John nor the Pope Innocent III were looking for any trouble. But into this mix came the troublesome monks of Canterbury. The rules were that the Archbishop of Canterbury was to be appointed by a free vote of the Canterbury Cathedral Chapter, a body that included secular canons and monks. Now, when we say free, the king's view of the word free could be described as idiosyncratic. I refer you again to that lovely writ from Henry II. We order you to hold a free election, but nevertheless forbid you to elect anyone except Richard, my clerk. In practice, everyone knew that appointing bishops and archbishops was basically the king's gig. For example, here's a typical chronicle entry. John, king of England, gave Giles, son of William de Breuse, the bishopric of Hereford. Those monks at Canterbury, though, were a cussed lot. They'd been fighting continuously to keep their rights to elect the Archbishop of Canterbury for some time. Now, they knew that John wanted a man called John de Grey to get the post. He was an eminently reasonable appointment. He was Bishop of Norwich and a secretary to the King, so he had that combination of religious probity and administrative experience for what was, after all, one of the high offices of state. But the monks were determined that one of their own should get the job so they snuck away into a corner secretly elected a chap called reginald and sent him off to rome to be confirmed in his position by the pope to do them justice that they did tell reginald not to announce his election unless it was absolutely necessary to thwart the king but reginald fancied himself as an archbishop of canterbury so announced his election as soon as he arrived there have been few bunnies less happy than John on hearing from his agents in Rome that some bloke called Reggie might be his Archbishop of Canterbury. He stormed down to Canterbury and gave the monks a piece of his mind, and I think we can imagine that it wasn't the peace that favoured love, peace and harmony. He then held a new election, all done properly by the monks in his presence, and guess what? The monks unanimously elected John de Grey, then the bishops gave their consent as well. So a new delegation was sent off from the king to Rome and John probably thought that that was an end to it. As it happens, it was not the end to it. It was not the beginning of the end and in fact it wasn't even the end of the beginning. Not to labour the point too much, it was in fact just the plain old beginning. In Rome, Innocent III was bemused by all these comings and goings. Innocent III was no pushover. He was a reformer with a very keen sense of papal power. He also appears to have had ears that stuck out quite significantly. But this is, of course, not in any way relevant to the great story of the affairs of man. Here's an excerpt from one of his letters that sums up his attitude rather nicely. Now, just as the moon derives its light from the sun, and is indeed lower than it in quantity and quality, in position and in power, so too the royal power derives the splendour of its dignity from the pontifical authority. Now, don't get me wrong, Innocent was no Gregory Seventh. He was a subtle politician, well aware of the compromises that had to be made. But he also had no fear of using all the sanctions of the church to make sure that its rights were upheld. So Innocent reviewed the case and decided that the best thing to do would be to start again. So he quashed both elections and told the cathedral chapter in Canterbury to hold a new one. Caught between the Devil and the Deep Blue Sea, the monks ended up voting equally for both John de Grey and Reginald. So, with deep satisfaction, Innocent put forward his own candidate, an Englishman called Stephen Langton. To the Pope's mind, Stephen Langton was deeply suitable. No matter that his career had been outside England, he was an eminent theologian and a staunch advocate for the powers of the Church. The monks were delighted to be out of a tricky spot, Innocent was really pleased to have thought of him and gave himself a pat on the Episcopal back and dropped a note to John telling him how clever he'd been. He got acid in return. The bunny was possibly even more unhappy than when he'd heard from the monks. He had not given his assent. But Innocent would have no more of it and Langton was duly invested with the pallium in Rome. He was also duly invested with the bile of the king, who threw the monks of Canterbury out of England, refused to allow Langton into the country, and decreed that anyone who called Langton archbishop would be declared a public enemy. This is a classic bit of John. And so we arrive at Deadlock. Neither side could abandon the struggle without abandoning their honour and prestige. Innocent waited for a while, hoping that John would come to his senses and climb down from his high horse. But once he realised that John was firmly in the saddle, he threatened action. He threatened a general strike of the clergy of England, otherwise known as an interdict. Basically, with the exception of the baptism of infants and the confession of the dying, the clergy were closed for business. No services, no church bells, no sermons, no afternoon calls for a biscuit and a cup of tea. He wrote a letter to the barons telling them to save their king from making such a terrible mistake. And John made the normal John response, just as he had with Philip over the Lusignan affair. He pretended to negotiate, he gave half-promises that were subsequently more than fully broken, but in innocent he had met a man like Philip, i.e. not a blithering idiot. And so interdict was duly proclaimed in March 1208. The clergy obeyed the authority of the Pope and the bells fell silent. To say that John, his barons and the people of England didn't give a tinker's curse would be overstating the case. There's little doubt that the withdrawal of the church was deeply troubling to the medieval man. But on the other hand, there's really no evidence at all of any general distress. And no time is there a groundswell of opinion against the king. There's no great outcry or feeling that their lives were unsupportable without the support of the church. You might ask why this is. After all, we're told constantly of the importance of religion to medieval men. From the point of view of the Barons, they were no more comfortable with the increasing belligerence of the Pope over the control of church appointments than was John. They rather liked having the patronage that the right to the appointment over the local church gave the term used for this right for your interest and future information was advowson. and for John, this was quite frankly a wonderful opportunity for two reasons. Firstly, he was able to tell the clergy that since they were clearly more loyal to the Pope than to him, and weren't working anymore, that obviously they wouldn't be needing any of the revenue from their lands then. And he took the church lands and their revenue into royal administration. Now, once the first flush of his joy had receded, he realised that he didn't have the men to run all those estates, so generally he allowed abbots and bishops to buy back the right to administer their lands, in return for a substantial fine. The interdict basically solved many of John's worries for him. By 1214, he had built up a royal treasure of around 200,000 marks, ready to finance foreign wars, and having all those church revenues was a big part of it. The second reason was that the interdict allowed him to indulge his rather nasty sense of humour. As you know, the church had tried really hard to enforce the celibacy of the clergy, but the clergy had far more housekeepers as they were known than were needed to keep any number of houses you can think of. I hardly need to tell you that keeping house was not the full sum of the housekeeper's job description. Anyway, John had these housekeepers seized and held for ransom. The Pope himself might well have approved of the seizing bit, but not the second bit. To the horror of church reformers, the clergy of England rushed to pay those ransoms. The interdict was to stay in place for five years up to 1213 until John's situation changed and he needed the Pope's support. As the years went by, the barons' attitude did begin to change a bit. As they suffered more from John's tyranny and as they increasingly saw their ancient liberties and customs infringe, they began to reflect that there was a pattern here. The ancient customs of the church were being walked over and John was demonstrating his ruthlessness and maybe they began to think that they had common purpose with the church, or at least a common complaint. In these years of John's reign, the constant paranoia and desire for security that would eventually lead to Magna Carta was always there. But in general, he does seem to be overcoming his difficulties. For the moment, money was sorted, and he was also pretty successful at dealing with the neighbours. In Scotland, William the Lion had started off talking tough, but turned out to be something of a chocolate teapot. At the start of the reign, he belligerently demanded that he have the lordship of both Cumberland and Northumbria, just like his elder brother had in the previous reign, and if he didn't get it, well, he'd just come down and take it, like it or not. He then rather reluctantly agreed to meet John, who said, maybe. That maybe went on for a good nine years, during which the relationship was strained but hardly terminal. In 1209, John decided that he needed to deal with this and called on William with a large army behind him and demanded the submission of three castles as a sign of William's loyalty. William basically did a bit of grovelling, handed over two daughters as hostages and paid 15,000 marks for John's quote, goodwill, end quote. If you're interested, by the way, my goodwill is available for a good deal less. Anyway, that was effectively that the situation in Ireland was rather more complex. Basically, royal power was far from impressive, and the whole thing had become something of a bunfight between various local and Norman lords, while the Justicia sat in Dublin trying to make sense of it all. For example, when William the Marshal fell from John's favour, it was Ireland where he hung out, as far away as possible from the King's irritability. John tried to harass him through the Royal justiciar of Ireland and ended up seeing the justiciar out harassed by William and his friends which rather proved the point. John then appointed John de Grey to be justiciar in 1208 the same guy he'd wanted to be Archbishop of Canterbury but without the basic wherewithal there was little that even John de Grey could do. Meanwhile John was hunting William de Breuse, who was hanging out in Ireland as well while the Justiciar chewed his fingernails in frustration, Briuse was welcomed, fed and watered by men such as William the Marshal and another major Norman landowner, Walter de Lacy. In the spring of 1210, John figured enough was enough. So, he put his army of English levies and foreign mercenaries together and headed on over. Suddenly the lords, who had looked so all-powerful, looked like a bunch of naughty schoolboys. John had clearly learned something since his last disastrous visit in 1185. This time he did no beard-pulling of Irish lords, and they in turn appear to have welcomed his arrival. He dispossessed Walter de Lacey for harbouring Briou's, and marched into Hugh de Lacey's lands in the north so that Hugh was forced to run away to Scotland. So, in a couple of months, whether you're a John hater or not, he'd made a big impact restoring some semblance of peace and order, re-establishing royal power, and rightly or wrongly giving his opponents the laces a good kicking. Wales was not such an easy task. The basic situation in Wales remained the same as ever. The fact that lords divided their lands meant that the Welsh kingdoms were often divided and weak. But in John's reign, Llewellyn ap later to be known as Llewellyn the Great, had established himself as a powerful leader in Gwynedd, and also dominating much of Wales. John's destruction of William de Bruys had also destabilised the Welsh marches, and changed the balance of power. So, Flewellyn felt confident enough to take on the English, and teamed up with the desperate William de Bruys. Flushed with the success of his Irish visit, John figured he could do the same in Wales as he did in Ireland, and in May 1211 he appeared in North Wales with his armies firmly tucked into his sleeves. He needed to run at it a couple of times as it happens. The Welsh followed the traditional pattern of retreating into the mountains of Snowdonia. As they sat there in safety, they watched the toiling English army start to starve to the point where they began to eat their horses. So John went back to base, stocked up with more nosh and tried again. And this time, Chlewellyn was forced to come to terms and they were unfavourable. And they were deeply unfavourable including a fine that he couldn't afford and an area of land in the north called the Four Cantrefs. A cantref, by the way, is a Welsh term for a unit of land, similar to the English Hundred. Anyway, Cluellen appeared to be cowed. But in fact, he was just messing, because the next year in 1212, Cluellen had gathered enough Welsh chieftains around him sufficiently irritated with English ways to revolt, and so they did. John had desperately been trying to get the much-delayed invasion of France off the ground. He'd called the feudal host up for an attack into Poitou, so the Welsh revolt was doubly irritating. But hey, he'd called out all those men, so fine, at least they wouldn't get bored. The army was duly remustered at Chester in August. Vast numbers of labourers were assembled, presumably to start building castles once the Welsh were defeated. John signalled his ruthlessness and determination by hanging all the hostages he'd taken previously from the revolting chieftains. But just as he was about to light the blue touch paper, news arrived from William the Lion, and from Joan, John's daughter, wife of Llywelyn. The message was the same. There's a plot amongst your own barons to kill you there. John immediately called the Welsh expedition off, and Llywelyn was saved. John stormed up to the north of England and found that there was indeed a fire to match the smoke. Two barons were forced to flee to France, a man called Robert Fitzwalter and a man called Eustace de Visey. These are two men you're going to hear more of in the future. The plot had been nipped in the bud, but it was a warning that John's position was not secure. Next week, King John's Great Alliance and one of the defining battles of European history, the Battle of Bouvines. Good luck everyone and have a great week.